Hello, my name is Daniel Lebschkolnik, and this is Reenchantment, a podcast about finding meaning in a secular age. The reason I haven't put out new episodes in a little bit is because I was fleeing from a hurricane. Hurricane Ida displaced me and thousands of others from the New Orleans area, and I'm only really now getting back on my feet again. I'm thankfully all right, as stressful as it was, uh, but I know that not everyone is. Uh, As I drove back into the city, uh, I passed many small towns and shacks, and I saw boats flipped up on their sides, and uh, I saw houses destroyed, and it really brought home to me how devastating these storms can be. Some people lost everything. You know, climate scientists predict that hurricanes like this will hit more often and likely be more, more powerful in the future. And between rising sea levels, hurricanes, and many other factors in the coming years, my city is probably going to be among the first victims of mass environmental displacement. It's sobering to experience in reality what for so many years has just been theoretical. With uh, that said, for this episode, I spoke with Professor David Potter about his new book, Disruption, Why Things Change. Professor Potter is a historian at the University of Michigan, and this book, in this book, he argues that the mainstream has historically been conservative, striving to preserve its own power, and that radical change almost always begins with ideas that took shape on the fringes. With the speed at which technology is moving these days, we're seeing disruption constantly. And arguably, this same historical process is playing out on smaller scales in fast forward in many different industries. This book takes a good look at the past to try and understand where change may come from in the present. Here is my conversation with Professor David Potter. Professor David Potter, welcome to Reenchantment. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here this afternoon. And the reason we're we're here this afternoon, of course, is to talk about your new book, uh, Disruption: Why Things Change. And this is quite an ambitious undertaking. You try to uh, look at some two thousand years of, of human history and and figure out. What made the major changes uh, in this time take place? What were the dynamics? What were the uh, what were the aspects of these big changes? Uh, you talk about the rise of Christianity. You talk about uh, the rise of Islam, the Protestant Reformation, um, popular sovereignty in the American and the uh, attempted French revolutions, and also in Marxism and. Uh, the ideas of Spencer as well that led to some of the social Darwinist ideas. Uh, and you, it, it's a very ambitious project. And your hope, as I understand it, is to understand the past so we can understand the present. Exactly. I think at a time when everything is moving very quickly, it's very helpful if we can sort of step back and say, when has there been something like this in the past? What has happened as a result? 
Uh, how do we use the models that we can derive from the study of the past to understand what's going on around us every day? Uh, and especially at a point where we can see that there's been a very large-scale loss of faith in central institutions, uh, that we have a, a political system uh, right now which is challenged uh, by lies, um, where people uh, don't believe that the system is working for them at all anymore. Um, what are the consequences of that? What are the consequences of that have been in the past? Uh, when we look at the rise of political parties, um, not just in the, in the United States, but in the United Kingdom, uh, across the European Union, uh, which are based on the notion that uh, something has gone fundamentally wrong. Now, can you restore the balance uh, of the past? What do you need to do um, to set things straight? How can you move the situation in a positive direction? Um, and what I think we uh, can see looking at these varying examples are times when creative leaders have been able to use uh, new ideas uh, to shape a new kind of way of thinking. Uh, and there are other times where people have been vastly less successful, uh, sometimes using almost the same idea, the point of comparing the American uh, constitutional experiment with the French constitutional experiment. They really were the same ideas. They really were the same time. But in the American experience, you had people who knew how to create a middle ground and compromise. Whereas on the French side, uh, what we had uh, was an increasingly radicalized political system uh, where any kind of uh, effort at compromise uh, was going to be swept away. Um, yeah, that's an interesting point. And, and, I, and I wonder, um, what would you say is the role of compromise in these changes more broadly? Because when I think about uh, Christianity or Islam, I think of them as syncretic uh, organizations and, and movements that absorbed and, and changed depending on where, what, what cultures and religions they absorbed. Uh, there's a kind of inherent compromise that's, that's happening there. Uh, and, and then there are other, other times where I guess uh, may, maybe uh, Marxism uh, and, and social Darwinism were the, the more radical uh, you know, institutions that emerged from that were less willing to compromise. And uh, was that a reason, do you think, why they weren't as successful? Well, I think it's an interesting uh, comparison. I mean, Constantine's version of Christianity um, which really was um, very fluid. I mean, there hadn't been a single Christian doctrine before Constantine told people what it was uh, at the Council of Nicaea, uh, but it was also for him uh, a way of communicating ideals of government uh, to his subjects, uh, and it was important for him that people follow him and that he not force them uh, into a particular line of thinking. And you know, when we look at what has happened, say, with Marxism or social Darwinism, we see that there are all kinds of different outcomes. I mean, there are all kinds of movements which are associated with the ideas of Marx, which did not end up with the Bolshevik Revolution. Mm. Uh, that was a very particular 
use of Marxist uh, ideology in Russia uh, in 1917 by an extraordinarily uh, skillful and determined politician in uh, Vladimir Lenin. Um, when we turn to, the, to social Darwinism, however, I think we can see that there is more often than not a very dangerous um, and um, very damaging uh, result because social Darwinism is based on the notion of one race or one nation in competition with another, that there has to be a winner and a loser. Uh, and when you get tied up into that kind of political framework, uh, the result, there can't be a middle ground. Uh, and the result is going to be uh, extremely, uh, extremely destructive. Um, and we do see, I think, uh, the descendants of social Darwinist thought um, leading um, the Rassemblement National in France um, behind the Brexit movement um, and uh, certainly uh, in some political quarters in this country. Yeah. I, I wonder, what would you say are some of the, the hallmarks of uh, massive change like this? Uh, I know you mentioned um, the dynamic, one of the dynamics being uh, innovation on the fringes that then comes in to change the mainstream, which is inherently conservative. Could you talk about that and maybe some other hallmarks? Yes, absolutely. Because uh, essentially the ideology that's going to govern any kind of um, political system is going to be intended to preserve that political order. It is inherently going to be uh, very, uh, very conservative. Um, so that if you're going to have radical change, the principles that are going to drive that radical change are going to have to come from well outside uh, the mainstream. And you know, if we look at, say, Constantine's choice of Christianity, there are a whole number of factors that go into it, uh, not the least of which is that uh, Christians had been absolutely despised by his immediate predecessors, uh, Diocletian and Galerius were devoted persecutors of the Christian church. If you want to upset their apple cart, uh, bringing the Christians along with you uh, or becoming a Christian is one uh, very good way of doing it. But Christianity, as well for hundreds of years, had stood aside from the usual ideological take of Roman society, which is uh, essentially that um, the gods have put the, well, uh, the wealthy in charge. The wealthy will provide grain and uh, some nice games for you and don't rock the boat. Uh, Christianity's notion that if people uh, derive their status not from their wealth but from their faith in God is a radically different notion uh, from that. Um, and again, uh, with Islam, with Muhammad is uh, improving and updating as he was very conscious uh, earlier revelations, uh, but when we look at what happens with the Islamic, the rise of Islam, uh, this is a very small movement initially, and uh, something that we also can see is, is common, there's a very tightly knit group of people following usually a very charismatic uh, leader. They can work very well together. And although Muhammad dies before the great period of conquest, he has put together uh, an organization um, based on his own on his own teachings. 
And so that's 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 an interesting dynamic there. So not only does it come from the fringes and and uh, replaces uh, the mainstream or becomes infused into it, uh, but there is a, a dynamic that it's really a s- small group of of um, determined leaders that really drive this change. So it's not that the masses like come together and and make that change. It's that these leaders take advantage of discontents in the masses. Is that right? That's that's exactly right. What they do is they offer a new message to people uh, on the basis of their new set of ideas. Uh, this also in uh, our later transformation is also connected with the ability to understand new forms of technology to get those ideas uh, across to people. I mean, Martin Luther understood how to use a printing press in ways that the Catholic Church I simply couldn't imagine to create a public discourse in German, in the vernacular, to bring people along saying you can be part of this this movement. Uh, And again, uh, when we look at how the Reformation uh, spreads to uh, England, uh, people like Thomas Cromwell and Cranmer uh, understand how to reshape the message uh, that will make it uh, accessible and workable. Uh, for other people. Um, At the time of the French Revolution, again, Robespierre and his friends uh, knew that they needed to control the press, that they had to take control of the message. The court was completely lost. It was taken uh, by surprise because it didn't understand how you shaped popular opinion. Uh, Lenin, of course, in 1917, the first thing he does, he shuts down the opposition press. Uh, He understands full well that there's going to be one message and it's going to come from him. And he knew when he got back to St. Petersburg, uh, peace, bread, land, three simple words. We want that and no more war. And that distinguished him radically from the uh, provisional government. That's interesting. So the the kinds of technological change uh, that you're pointing to, it seems to be all uh, information distribution. And and so it's it's interesting to, to think that it's not maybe not so much um, uh, other types of technologies, but it's really how you spread information that makes a difference in these in these turnovers. Uh, and I and I guess that makes sense to me as well because you know looking at these these uh, major areas, uh, these major transformations, civilizational transformations you've pointed to, n- none of them really are about. Um, technology in itself, they're really about what I like to think of as mental technology or societal technology that has that that is new and changes the structure of how people interact with one another. And so I guess I, you know, today it's, it's, it rings, uh, it rings a bell to what has happened with the computer revolution and the digital revolution, where we now are in an age of, of a, a new Printing press of sorts. Uh, what what do you make of 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 that, and and what do you think might come of it? Well, I think that uh, what we certainly saw in the twenty sixteen uh, election um, was somebody's Twitter account uh, being <laughs> used the way that nobody had ever used one of uh, Twitter to just dominate the news cycle because it was so outrageous, um, you know, and. I think one of the things that worked in the uh, 2020 campaign, the Democratic Party became aware of the threat 
uh, of the nonsense news cycle um, and was able to take, you know, to get its own message out to over uh, to overcome um, the Trump Twitter account. Uh, but I think as we all think back to 2016, um, that the, the, the use of media in that campaign was something that we'd never seen the like of before. Uh, when we look um, now, of course, uh, also the uh, QAnon uh, conspiracy theorists, the differing corners of the internet, uh, what we have seen is something quite different, whereas in 2016, uh, the Twitter account, in a sense, occupied center space. What we've seen instead is a splintering of information. So people are off in their own echo chambers, uh, uh, creating, in some cases, their own alternative reality. And we don't really have uh, a particularly good answer to that right now, but we need to address how can we bring people back together so they're all talking in the same space. Mm now that they've been found a way to create uh, create that space. I mean, you know, 25 years ago, I mean, there were you know, a few major news outlets. Uh, people got their news from roughly the same places. They could react to them uh, in that way. And now uh, there is no, instead of news, we have some uh, information, it seems. And it doesn't need to be true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and it seems like that splintering is actually counterproductive to um, a big, you know, upheaval, a mental technological shift. Because uh, my guess is that in in the previous uh, shifts you talk about, the previous disruptions, uh, it it was more or less a coherent message that was getting out to large numbers of people. And today we do not have a coherent message. That's absolutely right. And but I think the thing that is concerning about that is if you don't have a single message, um, it's much harder to build consensus. Yeah. Uh, and at a point where clearly we're lacking a lot of consensus around really basic issues, um, you know, starting with uh, science. Um, right. You know, we need to, to, to really be worried that when we see communication splintering like this, how do we put it back together again? Because it's not going to stay splintered. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one of the nastiest examples, of course, in this book is the rise of, of Nazism, uh, where, again, everybody has their own vision of the world. There are a few myths that lie behind it. Um, but it's Hitler that puts together um, his own reality uh, to build a very substantial political movement. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, you know he really takes uh, you know Weimar Germany, you know a, a kind of uh, post World War One you know uh, democracy in turmoil, uh, and and takes all of the discontents and and, and unifies them behind. Uh, really powerful, um, a really powerful vision and really powerful symbols. And yeah, I guess there, you know, I think comparisons uh, uh, and, and echoes uh, 
there are echoes of that in, you know, uh, Trump's presidency, where people at least were were fearing that that would be the path that he might take. Um, but I guess there there's there are other examples around the world right now of uh, of leaders that are leaning towards the, the dictatorial and and taking advantage of the turmoil information, uh, and I think maybe are doing it with somewhat more success than than, than Trump. <laughs> I think that the one thing that we can be thankful for is that he's not very good at what he tries to do. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, again, um, President Xi in China um, is very much more capable of creating um, a myth of uh, or an image of success that is an alternative uh, to Western liberal democracy. Mm. So looking at the way in which um, major changes have happened in the past, where do you see uh, the potential for, for a major disruption and a, and a reorganization of our social or mental technologies today? Well, what I would like to think is that we can open up a possibility of greater fairness um, in the distribution of the goods of society. As, as we've seen in the last 20 years, the average person conditions of life have not improved at all. Uh, that we have created giant new corporations um, that have sucked uh, employment uh, out of our communities around, uh, around the country. Uh, all, some people have done extraordinarily well. The majority of people have not. Um, so how can we address the unfairness that has become central to the system? Because when we go back to looking at the justification for democracy, uh, the theories of Locke, um, uh, Rousseau, uh, in the distant past, it is that government has a responsibility to look out for the welfare of its own people. And we have lost, I think, a lot of track. Uh, track of how we actually do that. Just because some people are doing extremely well does not mean that everybody is doing uh, extremely well. And uh, this has opened the door uh, to fantasies about why uh, people aren't doing well. It's not anything to do with immigration, no matter what you want to say uh, about it, it seems to me. It has got to do with the fact um, that we have uh, uncontrolled monopoly capitalism um, centered around a group of technology companies, which also have the capacity of controlling the way that people talk about. Them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do think that the Biden administration is trying to take some with uh, Irene Khan and people like that, looking at these issues, but do we have the social will to do it? Yeah. And, you know, I, I feel like the, the narrative or the, the, uh, emotional tenor around uh, techno technology companies and, and big tech uh, it's shifted over the past few decades uh, from you know a tone of great optimism uh, to one of, of increasing uh, maybe cynicism or, or outright uh, fear of uh, what might what might they be able to do uh, in their own interests and do you do you think that that how, how valid do you think uh, that that perspective is? And in, is, is, there, is there a way to, to change the current dynamics so, so that 
the technological, uh, you know, revolution that we're in might actually be turned to the common good. Uh, well, I certainly agree with your perspective uh, there very, very strongly. Um, and I think that in the past we have shown uh, that we ha can actually control excessively powerful corporations. I mean, this is a country that did um, introduce uh, antitrust legislation at the beginning of the 20th century. We saw a very similar situation. Um, and that by breaking up and controlling very large corporations, you gave greater opportunities uh, for people uh, to move ahead. Uh, you opened space uh, for uh, a strong labor movement. Uh, you made it very much more difficult uh, for corporations to dominate uh, individual areas of the economy. We're facing the same kind of issue right now. We have solved these problems successfully in the past. Uh, the question is, can we do it again? Um, we can look at another uh, case in point, I think, just at the time of the Great Depression, where uh, the Brüning government in Germany decided the way you dealt with the Depression uh, was to lower government expenditure and fire people, uh, which opened the door for the Nazis. Whereas in this country, uh, Roosevelt took completely the opposite uh, direction um, and used government to create employment, to, to create benefits uh, for people uh, who had been victimized uh, by factors well beyond their control. Yeah, so I, I hear you talking about a, uh, yeah, kind of monopoly uh, busting uh, uh, effort to, to, in a sense, keep, keep uh, the competition and the and the jobs that that these companies create maybe but uh have it so that it's it's not in the hands of just a few a few individuals and a few individual organizations i mean if there's anything that's emblematic of the problem with this is people sending themselves to outer space <laughs> not a great deal of social benefit being seen in that expenditure of money i don't think um but it also i think brings us to what I hope is another important point of our studies of disruption, which is that there is no inevitable outcome. Uh, that there are choices that leaders make for good or for ill. Um, so you can't say, oh, I'm not responsible for this. It's just the, you know, the forces of history that have uh, created the situation. You know, absolutely not at all. Um, uh, when we look at the difference between uh, the use of uh, political theory by the framers of the Constitution um, and their French contemporaries, we can see things go going in completely different directions, despite the fact that the same ideas are driving both movements. Interesting. So how might um, somebody, somebody who's listening to this that was in a, a position of, um, I don't know, authority in, inside of a, a tech company or, you know, as, was, had some kind of political sway, what are, what are those, um, you, you talk about the control that individuals do have and the responsibility they do have in guiding how things turn out. Uh, what, what should they be thinking of? How should they be thinking of, of these problems um, if they want to, they want to, to turn the system uh, around? Well, I think that they will need to say, how do I create the common space where people who are currently 
disagreeing with each other uh, violently, who don't seem to be able to talk to each other, can realize that there's a common interest in moving forward. Uh, I think we can see this actually being done a bit more efficiently in the European Union, uh, quite possibly because what you're trying to do is control American corporations, uh, then we can do, see it being done in, in the United States. But we also have to recognize um, that the power of uh, Washington lobbyists needs to be controlled. Who can say that it is in their best interest as a politician not to be building up their campaign fund uh, uh, for the next election and instead to develop uh, a program to control precisely the people who would otherwise be giving you money. Mm -hmm. um, is there a way to find a will to legislate against a whole series of current political practices which may help you individually while being systemically bad? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and I wonder what, uh, you know, in, in a sense, we're talking about, um, you know, in, in doing this kind of monopoly busting, it, it feels like it's, it's not necessarily a, a disruption on, on the level of, of these previous uh, disruptions that you're talking about. In, in a sense, it's, it, it feels a little bit uh, like it has a conservative element to it. Can you imagine uh, a disruption that would really be disruptive? Um, and a, a disruption that would be really disruptive, I think, uh, would be to move in the direction um, that... Uh, we do actually see happening in China uh, of state-directed capitalism. Mm. Um, you know, what President Xi is doing now is actually very similar uh, to the new economic uh, program that Lenin uh, instituted at the end of the Russian Revolution. It is entirely possible to have um, state-directed, um, state-controlled capitalist system, uh, which, of course, does nothing but reinforce the power uh, of, uh, of a single party. Hmm. Um, and so I think that if we were to see that alternative, that would definitely be a complete disruption to our system. And I think one that we really wouldn't be very happy seeing. <laughs> so maybe what we could look and say, this is the alternative. If we don't do something to get our own house in order, this is very well where we can be heading. And it certainly would be um, you know, in the interests of those who are already able to exercise a great deal of political power and muscle uh, to enable that to happen. Well, Professor Potter, uh, it's been fascinating talking with you about these these major changes uh and i think i think for those that are interested in learning more about uh each of these big transformations find a copy of disruption why things change and i think it's it's particularly particularly relevant to to our situation today because uh you know the the we're at this cru crucial moment of change as we're talking about technologically and 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 with the popular dissatisfaction with uh, the kind of societal institutions we now have. 
Uh, so which way it goes, I think, as you pointed out, is 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 not clear. But we do have a responsibility and 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 an ability to uh, to to really choose one path or another. Yes, thank you, and I I I do hope that um, we can begin to uh, to to really take steps uh, take steps in in those directions. Um, and I hope if people are in order disruption, they do it through their local bookstore, not through Amazon. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Reenchantment. You can find Disruption, Why Things Change by David Potter on bookshop.org. If you like this episode, please share it online or with a friend. It really does help the show grow. And if you'd really like to help, please consider becoming a patron by going to patreon.com and searching for reenchantment. The recommendation for contribution is about $5, which is the cost of a cappuccino with a little bit of extra foam. But you can support the show for as little as $1. Thank you again for listening. I'll see you next time on Reenchantment. Reenchantment.